Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and it is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. And if you prefer listening to the text, there is a new audio version just published this year, which you can download from Amazon, iTunes, or audible.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Now I need to... Um make a little presentation here and see how you feel about it. There's a portion of this book that's very important to get through. It's the breakthrough part of the book, which deals with modern revelation. It tells us things about the Bible that uh, just wasn't known before the gospel was restored. And in order to cover all of that and get over um, to... Um, over into the area which is once again traditional Bible, I need to have a couple of um, courses doubled, a couple of assignments doubled up. And um, I want to see whether you would like to have me just lecture on it or whether we would have it as a regular assignment. Uh, we've, we've finished up to 3.11 today and you'll get so much more out of it if we if we can do it uh, together. How many of you would be willing to go f to take 50 pages for next Tuesday and take us up to 361? How many of you be able to willing to do that? Uh, so that we'll get it. How many of you feel that's just too much? <laughs> well, a few, a few feel, yes. Um, yes, well, it's, that's right, 127 in the Bible. And um, if I can get you caught up with the theory of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it'll be much easier for you to read. So um, if, you could, if you could spend the time on the text for the time being till you get uh, Leviticus, is, uh, will scramble you when you just read it from scratch. Uh, it's, it gets boring, and uh, actually it's in a very exciting book legally. But for the purpose of getting the theory of the text and, uh, and staying up and getting those 50 pages read, the, the majority, the vast majority are willing to try it, and can I ask those who felt that it was kind of an imposition to kind of ride with us this one assignment uh, and... Uh, and see if you can't get it through by, by Tuesday. It's 50 pages, but it's big print. I know in something, you can cover it pretty fast. But it, uh, it, it's such an important part, and I'm so anxious that we be sure we can do justice to it. This is the first semester. You see, we've ended uh, in December. And for some reason or another, we're running a little shorter than we ordinarily do. And if I can pick up that one assignment, double that one assignment, I think we're going to come through in good shape. I can give you most of the material you need to have. Then we leave a few chapters right at the end 
which I hope everybody will read, but those who want to improve their grades can hand in their assignments on. And uh, you get an extra seven points for each additional assignment to kind of help make up for exams that you may have had a little difficulty with. So if you'll be good sports with me and write out that one, why we'll be all right. We've tried to um, uh, have a, a, around 25 to 30 pages each assignment, so this does double it a little bit. So if, I hope you won't feel too much imposed upon, we'll see if we can cover it. Now from here on, as I mentioned, we have breakthrough material. And this will be unique. You can ask bishops, stake presidents, and so forth about it, and they'll know nothing about it, so don't do that. Uh, it isn't fair to them. They belong to my generation, and our, my generation wasn't taught these things. We're just barely getting these out. That's why President Lee says our problem is we don't know our own standard works. We've studied them just enough to get a testimony of them, that's all. And we say, you know, I've got a testimony of the Book of Mormon is true, thank goodness, and they put it aside and never do learn really what the book's all about. We've done much the same with the others. So uh, a lot of these things you will notice are footnoted phrase by phrase. So don't quote Brother Skousen or the third thousand years. Quote the scripture. That's what I want you to learn to do. And somebody says, now where did you get that from? The Doctrine and Covenant says it. It does? Yes. And then you get no argument. If you say, well, it's in, uh, it's in a certain book. Oh, well. Or Brother So-and-so said it. Oh, well. And that's not the way we make progress with the gospel. Quote your sources so that you can have their confidence that you do know what you're talking about. So that's why this book is, you notice I've just loaded it with, uh, with sources. I, if I say it was a beautiful, bright day, it's footnoted. You notice that? Otherwise people say, there we go, writing it in. Now sometimes I, I would say, since the sun was ordered to stand still, I would assume that it was a bright, sunshiny day. See? Anyway, I sometimes draw conclusions and tell you that I'm drawing conclusions. That's just my best thinking on the subject. But if the scripture says it, I quote it. And I give you a footnote. You had your hand up now. Right. That's what happens, that's right. So you don't really have to uh, memorize all the footnotes. All you have to say, it's right out of the scriptures, I can show you. See? Then you're all right. Then you go get your 3,000 years. <laughs> and, and go down there and, and come up with your Bible and they'll say, boy, he really knows his Bible. Well, you do. I mean, at least you knew it was in there somewhere. And like me, sometimes you spend a whole Sunday afternoon trying to find the reference, but uh, that's why I put it in here so you, uh, you remember that it was Deuteronomy and not Leviticus where it says that uh, in the pre-existence we were named Israel. Boy, I, I thought that was in Leviticus I, oh, about 20 years ago. I spent a, practically a week trying to find that passage. That's in Deuteronomy, way up in 32, just before the end of the life of Moses. So... That's why I've got it in here for you. So if I say it, it's because the scripture said it. If I'm deducting, I will always warn you with a word like it would appear, or undoubtedly, or it would seem, or it seems logical, etc. That's to warn you that I'm talking now. But anything else is a scripture. Okay? Now, 
When Moses got back to the mount, after all, this is pretty exciting. This is where he saw the burning bush. This is where he had his first communication with the Lord. This is where he got Genesis, which he had already recorded. Um, this is where he'd had marvelous revelations and, and so forth. And now he's arrived. And if you put your universe away, we'll get back to the scripture of the Old Testament, okay? I know that's a great temptation to know what's going on in the world currently, but that's for tonight. This is a dedicated period devoted to the Old Testament. Now, I want you to notice what ha happened here. You see, we don't know, if we didn't have the Doctrine and Covenants, we wouldn't know what was in the mind of Moses when he went up to the mount to report back to the Lord. I have them. <laughs> They're a mottled lot, but I've got them down there, and they've complained, and you've saved their lives and saved my reputation, and it, but at least we're here, Father, we've arrived. Now, see, we don't know that he's coming there with the anticipation that he's going to take them all into the presence of the Lord. He's going to have them all see God. We don't know that. Uh, we just think he's a humble ex-shepherd, ex-Pharaoh's crown prince, uh, reporting in with three million. No, he's got aspirations for these people. Now, he's going to build them into something really tremendous if he can just get this slave complex off their minds. Now, unless the Lord had told us that in the Doctrine and Covenants, we wouldn't have known what was in the mind of Moses. So he goes up, and the Lord said, All right, now, the first thing I want you to do, Moses, is to go down and put them under covenant and ask them if they will obey all of my commandments so that they can become a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. Now, every time God has talked about making his people above everybody else, he's been talking about creating another city of Enoch another Nephite golden age, another new Jerusalem of the latter days. That's what he's talking about. Building up a people so righteous and so kind and generous, so patient, everlastingly uh, uh, good students, uh, so full of vigor and vitality of Brigham Young and Joseph Smith's caliber, that the whole world will say, now there is something to behold. And we will go and learn from them. This is what the New York... Um, papers were saying about Joseph Smith just before he died. He said, this man really is phenomenal. And if the persecution forces hadn't have gotten going, and of course the Lord knew this would happen, but if they hadn't, the great industrial center of the United States would have developed around Nauvoo. And the historians in Missouri now say if they hadn't driven the Mormons out of Missouri, Missouri would have become a great industrial state in the Midwest, one of the earliest in the nation. Because he said, there's no doubt about it, that's the direction the Mormons were headed, and they had the ingenuity and organizing ability to have made a tremendous um, civilization center out here in our state, and we didn't recognize them for what they were. We just saw they were different and drove them out, and it was a mistake. This is in the writings of the historians of the state of Missouri now. So the saints were poverty-stricken and driven out into the mountains where uh, they deliberately avoided the industrialization process in order to accomplish another purpose. But in any event, the Lord is building the people up until they can have universities and welfare programs and as a level of morality and of good parenthood and obedient children that will be a marvel to the world. And then they will come and say, may we see. And when Brother Sperry saw the, the vision of this campus back in 19, uh, about 1932, as I recall, 
and saw the temple up here and the whole campus covering the as far as he could see buildings um, he was told that the whole world would one day come to be instructed that leading people outstanding national leaders would come to learn here and that it would be under the supervision direction of the priesthood now that's the Lord's vision for his people whenever he says they will be uh, above all people he doesn't do that to build up their egotism or anything he's just simply trying to say this is your potential you are Israel from the pre-existence you can do it now rise to your opportunity so the covenant was made and I, I stressed here how this had been made in other ages and how it's been made by God with us now and we're on the way if we can just measure up to it and then I point out the three things at least three things that Moses had in mind when he went up to the mountain and I would remember those if I were you because he first of all wanted to regenerate their lives so that they were worthy to come into the presence of God and then he wanted to have them get the priesthood which is necessary to come into the presence of God and then finally he wanted to have a temple where they could receive the endowment and actually have that great blessing of being able to walk and talk with Jehovah just like the city of Enoch did he didn't walk up and down the street talking with them they went into the Holy of Holies in the temple and there he walked and visited with them and to call them my friends now that's what Moses had in mind now when you read the 19th chapter of Exodus and know that which doesn't appear in the book of Exodus per se but when you know that out of the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants then the 19th chapter all of a sudden flares up into a blazing light of glory that it should be because you have Moses hoping that these people can come up into the presence of God and you have the Lord saying in effect Moses my son I have no problem appearing to them they have a problem being able to endure it and unless they are prepared it will just usher them into the spirit world and so they must be prepared but I'll tell you what I can do I can appear in a cloud before them and let them hear my voice so that they will hear me actually talking with you so you go down and prepare them for three days and have them cleanse themselves both physically and mentally and spiritually and prepare for the day when they will hear me talk to you so Moses comes down from the mount puts the people under covenant oh yes we'll do whatsoever thing God commands all right he said you're going to get to hear the voice of God and no doubt he said and I hope one day I can take you into his presence so you can see him like I've seen him talk with him like I've talked with him oh that'll be fine and so they prepared themselves for three days now on occasion when I've spoken at other universities sometimes the subject will get uh, over onto the Old Testament or onto religion or onto atheism and theism etc some of these universities love to philosophize and they'll say uh, why is it that in ancient times they saw God but today you can't and uh, don't you really think that's a figment of imagination I said it wasn't to those who saw him that's what you're talking about well why can't we all see him I said the answer is very simple ultimately you will, you will all see him but most of us not in this life oh I see I see it's that old uh, line no 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 I said some will see them in this life enough 
Well, it's, it's, isn't that witch doctor talk, really? Really? Okay, honestly, now, as a, as a scholar and a gentleman, um, isn't that just something that these religious leaders do to put the people off? And I said, it's very easy to tell a legitimate representative of God from a phony. A legitimate representative of God will prophesy and it'll come to pass. A legitimate representative of God will promise and it will be fulfilled. And I said, for example, supposing you had been with Moses and had come up out of Egypt with Israel, would you have liked to have seen God? Moses said he did. Would you like to have seen God? Yes, yeah, I really would have. I'd have liked. All right, so did they. So did they. And Moses assured them that it was possible. But when he asked God about it, God said they're not prepared and it'll kill them. There's a science of the heavens as well as of the earth. It'll kill them if they come into my presence unprepared. And then I'll usually get interrupted and I'll say, yeah, see, that's, that's, the, that's the phoniness of it, always promising, never fulfilling. I said, oh, wait a minute, I'm just talking about the 19th chapter of Exodus. I haven't gotten to the 24th chapter yet. So I said, let me follow the story with me. Let me just show you what happened to some human beings like you and me who had the same aspiration to come to the presence of God. Let me show you just exactly what the record says happens. Moses went down to prepare them. He's right in the midst of preparing them, and their third day has arrived, and all of a sudden the mountain is on fire. There's, uh, there's quaking of the earth. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Something tremendous is happening here. And Moses goes up to report to the Lord that the people have been cleansed and he thinks they're ready. And he barely gets up to the top of this mountain, which for an 80-year-old man was quite a climb. And the Lord says, get down, get down, quick. They're trying to come into the mountain and see me. And if they come up this mountain, it'll kill them. Get down, Moses. And Moses said, no, they wouldn't dare. No, I set the boundaries. They wouldn't dare. And the Lord just didn't argue with him, did he? He says, get thee down. And don't let them come up. They are not ready. So Moses went down, apparently gave them a real tongue lashing and pushed them back uh, to a safe distance. And um, there they were standing, all of them, in that situation when all of a sudden this trumpet began to blow. It was like the sound of a trumpet, which is a very special tone to the human ear. And it became louder and louder and louder and louder, and all of a sudden a voice began to speak and said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he went through the whole Ten Commandments, and they all stood there listening, or at least Moses thought they were. And after the Tenth Commandment had been given against covetousness, Moses turned around, apparently hadn't even noticed what was happening up to that, just enthralled, now they're hearing it. Yeah, and no, I get it, I heard it. Yeah, that's the next one, all right. And here he is thinking it through, he's got it. He turns around and says, isn't this wonderful? And he is all alone. <laughs> they have run. And it says he ran to catch them and said, come back, come back. No, they said, you get it. We'll believe you, you get it. That's too scary. And it, it was traumatic. All right. Moses went back and recorded the whole law of the covenant. And this is a breakthrough for Bible students. What he recorded 
and the Ten Commandments was part of it, is a permanent part of the gospel. It was not the law of Moses so often referred to, which means the carnal commandments. It was the law of the covenant, which was a permanent law unto the gospel and to which uh, the saints of God in the days of Enoch and the days of Adam, and the Lord restored much of it, uh, key points of it in the 42nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants. That's what Moses got. And this would make these people superior to all other people in existence. And so he recorded that. Now, you gradually get up to the 24th section where God says, Now, Moses, you have some who have, are in a position where they can come into my presence and see me and converse with me at least from a distance without being destroyed. And so you bring your brother Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and these 70... Only these. And he named them. And you can bring them up into the mount, and I will converse with you. And so, as I would say at these university seminars, you see, this is what the atheist would have difficulty dealing with if he were talking to Aaron. Because though in the 19th chapter Aaron didn't get to see God, in the 24th chapter he did. And 72 others saw it also, his two oldest sons and 70 men, all called by revelation, got to stand there and, and see that they were indeed made in the image of Jehovah. And they saw his glory and his power. They watched from a distance. And, the, and God then said to Moses, now come on up into the mount. And Moses and our great ancestor Joshua the Ephraimite went up into the mountain with Moses and had to wait for six days before they had any further communication. Meanwhile, they had told Aaron and his comrades to stay there. They'd probably have to send down for food unless they could fast 40 days and 40 nights, which they apparently didn't, and neither did Joshua. At least uh, Moses is the only one given credit for having been able to do it, and he did it while in spiritual sublimation and in suspended in the spirit, no doubt. You cannot live beyond 12 days without food. In fact, you'll be in uh, very serious trouble in seven days. And, if, and to go without, you can't even go without water that long. So this was a physical impossibility without divine intervention. But anyway, they were told to stay on the mount and wait until Moses came down. They didn't stay on the mount. They went back into the camp. All the people began agitating against Aaron and saying, let's go back to Egypt. Uh, he's been gone so long. So he was gone quite a while. It's... Uh, that's nearly six weeks. Can't possibly be alive, and so let's go back to Egypt. This is no place to stay. And they got to agitating, and finally they said, but well, and then let's have a party. If we can't go, let's at least have a party. You know, an old Egyptian party. No, 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 no. Well, let's, let's make a calf. And it, they either were going to leave, it looks like. At, in any event, there was a delaying action on the part of Aaron, and he actually carved him a calf. And uh, he seems to have excused himself on the basis that what else could he do? He said, I had these people in revolution against me, and I was having to give a little and so forth. And, and then we have these, this terrible uh, orgy that occurred, but he said, I had them offering sacrifices, and then they rose up to play, and I couldn't control that. But anyway, uh, this, this was all happening while Moses was on up in the mount. He waited for six days, and then he was called on up into the top of the mount all by himself. And he went up there, and the Lord said, Now this is what I'm going to make. 
first I want a temple, and I want a portable temple that you can carry with you through the wilderness. He knew it was going to be 40 years. Moses didn't. Uh, and he said, I'll give you the exact dimensions and the way it shall be built, and then I will teach you the ordinances that belong to my temple service, which, of course, uh, by this time are completely lost. And so you have this marvelous revelation given to Moses on how to make a temple and what should happen in it. Right. Well, not the Father. He saw the God, Jesus Christ, or Jehovah, uh, and um, no one talks to anybody but Jehovah in the Old Testament after the fall. Um, sometimes Jehovah will appear and say, uh, he will talk as though he were the Father, and I've explained that to you. That's, a, that's priesthood procedure. You must understand that. But that's Jehovah talking, delivering the message from the Father in the first person, kind of sounds like the Father. So it, it was confusing to... Um, scriptorians before the gospel was restored, even though they had some examples like John the Revelator, which should have given them a key to what was happening, but they missed it. Um, yes, they, 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 the only time the Father has been seen has been in vision where he's in his heavenly uh, home. For example, Stephen saw him in heaven with the sun on his right side, but he didn't see him here on earth. Um, Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith saw the same vision. Lehi saw the same vision. Alma saw the same vision. But always God was in his um, celestial abode. And um, in, the, in the parable of the history of Israel recorded by Zenos, it specifically says that the master of the vineyard would make his presence known on the earth in connection with the great final effort the great final effort he would participate which would further suggest that the Father just hasn't participated until that marvelous moment when this earth was honored with the very presence of Elohim himself, not for long, but just long enough to say to this very outstanding personality that had been ushered in from the pre-existence and knew himself only as a humble farm boy, to say to him, this is my beloved son. Hear him. That was a great moment in history. Now I saw another hand. Yes, to go through the veil on his own initiative. He saw Jehovah. And in fact, it explains it in that chapter. Jesus says, now you're seeing me the way I will appear in the flesh. This is the, my spirit body, and this is the way I will appear when I come in the flesh. And he said, uh, you're the first one that has ever had the faith to come right on through without my having to quicken you first. See, all of these people that saw Christ had to be quickened. They'd have been, uh, that's the only way they could come through. God had to reach out and spiritualize them, so to speak, so that they could actually see. But not with the brother of Jared. And, and so the Lord says, what else did you see? Could you see anything else? No, I just saw your finger, but I, I want to see the rest. And the Savior said, and I couldn't keep you off beyond the veil. So I'll make it easy. I'll open it up for you. But with this much faith, I actually can't keep you out. It was a great compliment to Mahanrai Moriankumar, Brother Jared. Any question now further on that point? Now, the Lord said, I will give thee two tablets, and so far as we know, the Lord himself prepared those two tablets. Were they written on one side or both sides? Isn't that interesting? And we now know that it had to do with the Melchizedek priesthood and all the holy and uh, ordinances thereof. And what are the holy ordinances thereof? 
What does it pertain to? The holy endowment which is given in the temple, which is covenant-making and a teaching procedure so that in a very simple way we are taught the realities of God's great contest with powers of darkness and his great aspiration to make us just like him. Kings and queens, priests and priestesses, and literally sons and daughters of the very eternal God ruling and reigning in the universe with him, on a par with him, as though we were speaking as he spoke. He said, all of that I have planned for you if you'll just stay with me and keep coming and don't let immorality or crime, drugs, rebellion, criticism of the authorities and those things get in your way and stop you from, keep, from coming on up. Did I see a hand back here? Okay. Now, it's, it's interesting that... Uh, The law of the covenant, which I want to say just a word about, is the finest system of justice that you can achieve in the second estate. You'll notice the, the uh, I, I only cover enough of the law of the covenant here to just give you a taste of how comprehensive it is. Talking about bond servants, accidental homicide, abuse of parents, law against kidnapping, battery. Uh, abuse of servants, injury to expectant mothers, punishment for mayhem, which is injuring another person, uh, animals that destroy human life, or animals that injure other animals, uh, people that leave uh, attractive nuisances like uncovered pits, uh, uh, cattle rustling, uh, nighttime burglary versus daytime burglary. It was a different law. Um, and what happens when you turn your cows into somebody else's pasture and then those that set fire deliberately and those that abscond with other people's goods they've been trusted with, the, uh, the seduction of uh, the innocent uh, by those with sexual appetite, the problem of sodomy and homosexuality, uh, offering heathen sacrifices and indulging in the fertility cults, uh, how we should treat strangers when they come into our midst, the importance of a special treatment for widows and orphans, policies on usury and loans, uh, and uh, specific instructions to judges and rulers, the religious obligations of the people, whether in sacrifice or oblations, to, uh, to do so promptly, and what about animals that have been killed or torn in combat, and have adrenaline pouring through their whole system at the moment that they die, or, or yes, or kill. And what about false witnesses and lying on the witness stand? What about having a mob rise up? What about the abuse of the poor in the, through the courts and not giving them their just dues? And what about corrupting and using bribery? I heard of a terrible incident of bribery in Washington the other day, involving over $10 million for payoffs for certain, to a certain channel of government to get results. Um, there are elements of corruption in our government, and, and uh, you yourselves are going to find, as you get into business and into government, you're going to find a chance to cheat, that you can really um, uh, enlarge your enrichment and things that, uh, uh, your emoluments, etc., by just overlooking something or signing a paper that, after all, it's not that important and they're willing to pay a good price for it. You're going to be tempted to do that. And God in heaven says, if you take a bribe as a public officer, an official, you'll stand guilty before heaven, even if you get away with it down here. 
No, not any more than what's in the paper. Question was, uh, Brother Romney has resigned. Do I know anything about his future plans? I don't. It sounded as though he were going to join Common Cause, but I understand he said that he doesn't intend to, but he is looking for some existing organization in the field of public education on issues that he can join. of the gospel. Right. Okay, then I assume it uh, compromises chapters 20 through 22. Um, yes, uh-huh. And that's that will all be permanent. Yes, even at the New Jerusalem we'll be doing that. And when we get over here and you see how the law was enforced, it was the way it was done among the Nephites. And like King Benjamin said, we did away with prisons, we did away with slavery, we didn't have any bondage, we didn't have any uh, adultery, murder, fornication. I didn't suffer it. I enforced the law of God, and you see how prosperous and happy you've been? I supported myself, I did not draw taxes on you. He was uh, the, the model king administering the law. And as Mosiah later says, if you always had kings like myself and my father and my grandfather, you'd be all right. But you've got a wicked king like King Noah, you've got to rise up and shed, shed blood in order to liberate yourselves. So we've got to go back to the Lord's system of judges. That's what he said in the 29th chapter of Mosiah. And he gave them a new constitution based on what we're now going to read. And it's going to be like Jethro said, the way to govern according to the law of the priesthood is judges of tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands, and tens of thousands. And everybody handling everything he can locally. Solve your problems where the problems are. And don't go up any higher than you have to. And I didn't get to, to point this out last time, so let me share it with you uh, now very briefly. If you have ten families, let's see, you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. <coughs> Let's see, to illustrate it, I need to say it a little different. Let's say that each one of these represents ten families. Um, we have uh, this judge, this judge, this judge, this judge, this judge. Now these men are responsible for seeing that everything is going well in those ten families. He himself is head of a family, but he has nine families besides his own assigned to him. If any of those families have any problem, unemployment, sickness, or anything, he has the responsibility to see that it's corrected. Now, he may not be able to do it. So he goes up to the next level. What's the next judge? Judge of 50. So you've got a judge of 50 right here. And this, these 50 families, one, two, three, four, five, these 50 families all go to him to see if he can handle it. He's over here doing the same. And let's say it's, it's a pretty complicated problem. It involves quite a number of people. And this man says, well, I can't really handle this alone. It involves some of these people over here, too. We better go up one more step. So we've gone from tens to fifties to hundreds. All of these men in the Doctrine and Covenants are referred to as bishops or judges. Doctrine and Covenants uses bishops and judges simultaneously. It even speaks of apostles uh, in the sense that they have a bishopric, a bishopric. All right, now, do you see anything uh, similar t to this and what we have today? What is that? 
That's a war to the church. And when we're properly organized, and we've trained enough of our people to be good home teachers, we can then move over to the home teacher in charge of ten families. At the moment, home teachers can't hardly handle two or three adequately. They really can't. And the church is trying to prepare us for the time, and I was the high counselor in charge of the program when it was experimentally conducted uh, over 15 years ago, right in this area. And that was the most thrilling experience I, I think I've had, one of the most thrilling experiences I've had in, in priesthood functioning. Brother Taylor was our, um, our stake president and now an assistant to the Twelve, and we were assigned this task of going to a ward and taking uh, a, a given number of men uh, and putting one over about ten families. And he, he was very outstanding. We took the cream of the ward. And we eliminated our missionary program. If there was a divided family, he conducted the missionary program. He worked with the youngsters. He learned them by their first name. He met them at the door as they came in and called them by their first name. He knew which ones were having problems and troubles. And he was so outstanding in his own right, a former bishop or a counselor in the stake presidency, a former mission president somewhere, prominent member of the faculty and so forth, so that they did respect him. And uh, they'd call on him to administer to the sick. And that worked so good that when the church said, all right, now, that's enough. Forget about it. Go back now. Go back. Go back. The bishops didn't want to give it up. All of a sudden, the bishops could relax and know that the job was done. They were really running their wards. This system works, and the church has got to grow up to this, and we're on the way. We're not quite ready. We're almost there. Who are these? Bishops of 50. That or counselors. Probably the counselors fit a little, but we're not organized in our wards at this time just exactly this way uh, because this isn't perfectly organized. But we're on the route, and then we go from this to this, and there's your bishop. And if he has this to govern through, it really functions. Who is your, um, uh, your bishop of a thousand families? And who's the bishop of 10,000 families? Regional representative. God is setting up modern Zion exactly as he did ancient Israel. But we're having to grow into it. And I'm sure Enoch did too. Do you remember how long Enoch had to get his uh, prepared to be uh, translated? That was the length of his life. How long did he have the city together? 365. Yeah, 365. And as Brigham Young used to say, he said, I hope we can do it in a little shorter time because there isn't that much time left. He said... And um, so, But in any event, we only have people for about 70 years, and we just get them ready for the Zion Society, and they transfer. And, and we get a whole new set of juvenile delinquents to start out with to get the program going. So Enoch had some tremendous advantages over us because they actually lived that long in his day. So the law of the covenant that we're going to talk about is not only a permanent part of the gospel, but so is the organization that was set up. Well, uh, uh, this was a, a, a very unique situation. This particular stake had a very mature um, uh, church membership to begin with. And the brethren, I think, um, because they had me write up a report, the original report was lost, and I wrote it up again just last year to turn in the correlation committee. In. Uh, but um, um, there was wisdom in not initiating it right then. 
but President McKay wanted, uh, wanted to have had one stake kind of go through it. And as Brother Dyer says, that we may, this generation may, may see a time in the not-too-distant future, future when we'll have little Zion satellites set up, when people who are very mature and advanced and tolerant, charitable, patient, long-suffering, and can endure an occasional injustice and when somebody doesn't quite make the right just judgment, can tolerate living in, the, in a Zion society without blowing their tops. It takes a very mature person to be able to do that. He said, I won't be a bit surprised. He said, actually, we're equipped now to where we've got large population centers of saints to actually call certain ones on missions to set up a, a little Zion society for a group of them. And I, I'm, there are just so many things happening in the church the brethren aren't talking, but you can just tell. This is a great time to pay attention and stay close to the brethren, do what they ask us to do when they ask us to do it, and you're going to find some marvelous things happening in the next 10 years, both by the adversary and by the Lord. And they might ask us to reverse things. Just look what happened to the MIA. The old MIA program is dead as of this year. It's gone. And now we have the, we, we have the youth program under the presiding bishopric, and we have the adult program under the Melchizedek Quorums. It's a whole new epic. And I, I, as a boy, can remember the apostles saying that it would happen, that what happened in 1972 was coming. I can remember them saying it. And the Lord himself talk, talked about regional representatives which would be set up. So now these are things that are not generally discussed in Relief Society and priesthood meetings. These are concepts that are just fuzzy in the church. So we're so grateful that so many of you would sign up for Old Testament because that's the only place that they're discussed. In the Book of Mormon, everybody says, well, we went back to the system of judges under Israel. But you ask the average person who's finished the Book of Mormon, what was the system of judges under Israel? Oh, they, they had some men that would, uh, whenever they had a problem, they'd, they, they'd judge uh, problems between uh, 10 people and 50 people and 100 people. Well, that was the very small part of their work. What were they doing most of the time? Have you ever stopped to think how, how much time a bishop spends in actually serving as a judge, a judicial officer? Why, if it happens to him once in five years, it's rather remarkable. Courts are very rare in the experiences of bishops. They spend all their time administering to the temporal welfare of the saints. That's what these judges really were. They were bishops of 10, 50, and 100. Okay.